Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Our scripture from this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So hear now the Word of the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, Well, let me add a good morning to you as well. My name is uh, Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to 1 Corinthians 2. That's where we'll be. Um, Before I jump into that text, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Paul says that the one thing he knew among this church when he started it was your son and Jesus crucified. And so there's something in here about maybe how we should think about how we approach our lives and work and rhythms. And so show us and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul says in this passage that his entire way of life is is about this. Knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, That's how he approached his job, his vocation. How he approached his life in this church as he began it and lived that experience. And so what does he mean when he said... I lived among you and only wanted to know one thing, and that is uh, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is He saying? And what would it look like for you to take up that vision of life? For you to go into your school tomorrow and know nothing among your classmates except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified? What would it look like for you to roll into your office uh, tomorrow, or maybe Tuesday uh, if you got tomorrow off, And say, uh, I know nothing here among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What would that look like uh, in your family, in your marriage, among your siblings? Or the real test, what would that look like if you knew nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified at your family gatherings? That The question I want to put to us this morning is, what kind of life knows nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? And so to answer that question, I want to start where Paul starts, in verse 1, where Paul says, when he came to this church in Corinth to start it, uh, I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, or the NIV, with eloquence or human wisdom. Now, I believe these are some of the most misunderstood uh, words in all of the New Testament, that many Christians hear what Paul says by this and believe that what he's saying is per- Paul was purposefully not interesting in his preaching or teaching 
That he never used any kind of rhetoric, never told a story to tug on emotions, refused all speech-giving devices, didn't try to persuade them with arguments. He just preached the word, pure, unadulterated, no eloquence, no persuasive strategies. Is that what Paul's saying? Because if it's so, I have license to bore you out of your mind every week. And you can say nothing. Hey, it's just Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that what Paul is saying? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and a few reasons. One is this, this, that reading of these verses doesn't line up with what we know of Paul in the book of Acts. So just before Paul gets to the city of Corinth in Acts 18, in Acts 17 he's in the Greek city of Athens. And it was the place where all the most brilliant teachers and philosophers were. The place with the best universities. They spent long portions of the day debating ideas. And Paul goes there to preach. And after he's preached there on a while in the city of Athens, a few leaders from the city come to him and invite him to speak at a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus was where philosophers went to debate the latest ideas. And the only people who were invited to speak there were people who were compelling and persuasive and had interesting ideas. So the fact that Paul was invited to speak there was proof. He spoke in powerful, compelling, eloquent arguments. And then Paul goes there to preach. And when you find what what he said in Acts 17, he quotes no scripture at them, only two of their own poets, to show them your own culture is pointing you to the gospel. You should listen to your poets and believe in Jesus. So if we read the book of Acts, it's like, well, Paul clearly tried to persuade people and used eloquent arguments. Uh, But also this is like that reading of these verses is totally contrary to what we know of 1 Corinthians. Any theologian or scholar of Greek, the Greek language, which is what 1 Corinthians was written in, would say this is some of the most compelling and persuasive rhetoric that you will read. And proof of that is, if you go to a wedding this coming summer, most likely 1 Corinthians 13 will be quoted there. Whether they're Christians or not, it's some of the most beautiful, dare I say, persuasive language ever written. And so almost any commentator of 1 Corinthians notices this. Paul is using heavy irony here. What he's doing is saying, in really eloquent and persuasive language, He's saying he's, he refuses to use really persuasive and eloquent language. And the Corinthians would know what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. The point of this passage is not teach the most boring way you can imagine and don't try to persuade anyone the truth of Jesus. It's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? And I would sum up what I, I think Paul is saying with, with this. That a life of knowing Christ crucified places no value on the world's assessment of Jesus. When Paul says, I did not come with eloquence, he's not saying, shut down all apologetics ministries immediately. Stop trying to persuade your non-Christian friends to follow Jesus. Stop all of it. He's not saying that. Um, What he's saying is that That the message of the cross will never pass human standards. There's no eloquence possible that could ever make the story of Jesus just make total sense on the the world's terms and values. Paul knows the message Jesus Christ and Him crucified is ridiculous (laughs) on its face and will never pass 
the human institutions that we build to judge what is true and not. Andrew Wilson, who's a pastor and a theologian, he wrote a little commentary on 1 Corinthians, and in that book, he, he explains these verses this way. The cross is foolish in worldly terms and always has been. Bleeding, naked, impaled Jewish men are not the role models the world typically looks for. In Christian terms, the cross embodies the wisdom of God and displays the profound differences between the Creator and His creatures. And one of the things that I think Paul is addressing here in this letter is they've, they've stopped preaching about the cross. They've moved on to more intellectually satisfying and faddish ideas. They don't want to hear about bloodied Jesus any longer. That's not persuasive. They have better arguments now. So they don't want to hear about the crucifixion. They don't want to hear about the cross any longer. And it's a problem you and I will continue to encounter today. When you roll into school tomorrow, work tomorrow, your family or neighborhood events, we carry a message that will never pass human muster and standards. And we just have to name that and be okay with that. And even that has implications for our own discipleship of Jesus. That it, are you struggling with a teaching of the Scriptures? Something in the Bible? Something Jesus said? Something that's in the Old Testament? Because it just, it just sounds so backwards or grating or like, ooh, they believe that then? Is there anything in the Bible you feel that way about? Or surely there, it's, there's something you've read. It's like, ugh, I don't know about that. And most likely that struggle exists because there's something in the Bible that does not pass the values of our common culture and world today. The standards of our world. So what part of the Bible do you not like? Is it the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality? Is it what Jesus or the scriptures describe when it comes to race and ethnicity? Is it what the Bible talks about when it comes to men and women, gender? Is it how the Bible talks about what you should do with your money and your generosity? The bottom line is like the Bible just absolutely grates on things we take for granted that are the common values of our world. And so we should be asking, not can I believe this, but what values am I using to judge the scriptures, to judge what Jesus has said about himself. Whose values are you judging the Bible by? Because there's some problems once you begin to ask that question. For example, one of, one of the movies nominated for Best Picture is a movie called Zone of Interest. And it's a disturbing film. The plot is of an upper middle class uh, or an upper class German family living their normal German life. And you don't see it here, but, or you kind of see it in the background, but their normal German wealthy life is lived right next to Auschwitz. And the father of the home works at Auschwitz. And so the film is a meditation on how a normal, educated, loving family could be so complicit in the worst evil we could imagine. And this should give us pause, I believe, because Germany in the 1930s boasted some of the best universities in the world, the best art collections in the world. It had the most influential seminaries and theological schools of its day. And it was, it was by all intents and purposes, the best a human culture could offer. 
And it also gave us the Holocaust. The most educated, cultured culture of its time gave us the Holocaust. And it's obviously, that's an intense example. But look at anything that our great-grandparents said and took for granted. And so much of it now we look back on with, with like we're horrified. Read, read what was written and taken for granted in the 1910s and 20s, and it's, it will disturb you. And our belief could be, well, now we've arrived. And our great-grandchildren will look at us and think, what brilliant descendants or ancestors we have that we have descended from. No. They're going to be every bit as embarrassed by what we believed and took for granted as we are of our great-grandparents. We just don't know what those things are yet. And my point is many of those things that will embarrass our great-grandkids uh, in just a few decades are the very values we're looking at the Bible and saying, I, that's, no, you can't believe that. Whereas if you could just live 80 more years, and I'm sorry, most of you won't, if you could live 80 more years, you would see the value you're judging the Bible with now will be embarrassing at one point. No one will hold it. No one will think that's true. And so that's what Paul is saying is you can't, you can't judge the standards of the gospel by the values of the world. What, what book would you read to say, yes, the king of the universe should be crucified in a humiliating way for his enemies to save them? Like, no one thinks that way. And so Paul says, I, I can't, you want arguments and intellectual faddish debates. And listen, all I have for you is the king crucified. And it will never pass, that will never be an eloquent argument. So that's first. Don't take up the world's assessment of the cross. But back to our question. What kind of life knows nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucify. Well, the next thing Paul says after that sentence is in verse 3, where he says to these Christians, when he came and planted this church, he came in weakness and with great fear and trembling. We should ask, what does that mean? Well, we can know because we can read what happened when Paul planted this church in Acts chapter 18. So if you, if you have a Bible, I encourage you, uh, go a little bit to your left. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians. The book before 1 Corinthians is Romans, and then it's the book of Acts. And so uh, whether you, it's on your phone and you could go, get, get there a lot easier or you have a paper Bible, um, Acts 18, I want to read the first few verses to show how, why Paul was afraid in Corinth. Why when he planted this church, it was with great fear and trembling. Here's what we read first in verses 1 and 2 in Acts 18. Uh, Luke writes this about this, what happens. Uh, after this, Paul left Athens, what I mentioned a few minutes ago, and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So the church in Corinth started with these three people. And what do we know about these three people? Well, two of them are refugees. Uh, expelled from their home in Rome from the emperor because of anti-Semitism. So all of Rome is anti-Jew at this point, And there's two refugees in Corinth. And then Paul, who what we find out is a tent maker. Which may not mean much to you, but in this day, if you worked with your hands, you, that was considered demeaning. So if you were a philosopher or a teacher or a roving uh, roving sophist, whatever. Like you would take money from people you talked to so that you didn't have to work with your hands. 
But if you had to work with your hands, it was a sign. Your message isn't very compelling. You're not very intelligent. It, it was demeaning to work with your hands in this day. So that's our, that's our church planting team. Two refugees who have the wrong ethnicity and a guy who everyone would look down on. So that's where we start. Can you see why Paul said, I came to you with much fear and trembling? But we read on, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's in the synagogue preaching to Jewish people, Jesus is the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. So Paul preaches Christ crucified in Corinth, and he suffers violence for it. Abuse. They turn on him. Do you see why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, I came with fear and trembling. And then last uh, few verses worth reading. So Paul has a little bit of success after that, but it's clear his fear didn't go away. And so in verse 9, the the Lord Jesus appeared to him. Verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. So in the Greek word, typically in New Testament, when it's the Lord, that's about, that's Jesus. So Jesus gives Paul a personal vision. That's how discouraged Paul was. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Do you see why Paul said, I came to you with much fear and trembling? Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. This is all what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 2, and that's what he's, he's talking about. What he's saying to that, listen, I came and I preached. I suffered violence. Even when I had some success, I was still terrified of what was going to happen in this city. And it was only Jesus through a personal vision to me that kept me going. Because he promised, I have many people in this city. And I'm going to reach them through you. Don't give up, Paul. So what kind of life is Paul inviting us who follow Jesus into? Well, a life of knowing Christ crucified is a life of weakness. I came to you in weakness, Paul said. And the only way you can know Christ crucified is through weakness, dependence. So we're titling this message in next week, A Community of the Spirit in a Culture of Self. And I'll talk about the Spirit more in a second, but much more next week when, uh, when Brian preaches for us. But we, we live in a culture of self. Self-reliance, self-confidence, self-promotion, self-righteousness, self at the center. And after 20 years of doing church now as someone who serves the church in a vocational way, I've seen basically there's basically two ways to go on a spiritual journey. Two ways to, to live a life seeking God. The first is the, a journey with the self at the center. And that's what's going on here in Corinthians, is a lot of self-centered people. I mean, these Christians have been converted by Paul through his ministry. They were converted believing Christ had been crucified for them, but now they've learned some things. They've figured some things out. They know some theology. They've figured out the world a bit, and they start looking around at other Christians not like them and start judging them, boasting about their superior spirituality to these other 
folks. And that, of course, will always lead to division and arguments. Their church services have become chaos. And how often have we seen that in our church experiences? Some people figure some things out, and it doesn't lead them into a crucified posture of service and self, selfless love, but a self-righteousness that causes them to look down on other people. That the longer someone follows Jesus, it seems at times, the more judgmental they become. The more they divide from others, and their spiritual history is littered with about five to seven to ten years staying at one church before they move on because they're spiritually superior now to everyone in that church. They're always disappointed with the Christians around them who don't live up to their standards. It's why churches can be such divided communities at times, because the self is at the center of our spiritual journey, not Christ crucified. This is very different to put Christ crucified at the center of your spiritual life. And Paul's doing that here. I mean, think about Paul for a minute. Paul is, is the most successful church planter in history. Paul is arguably one of the most, like, influ- like five to six most influential people in all of history. He went into Corinth, a city, with just three Christians, himself, who no one would have respected as a tent maker, and two refugees, and he left a thriving, growing, multi-ethnic church in the Las Vegas of his day. It's stunning. And he did this in cities all over the Greek and Roman world. It's incredible. And, and so does Paul here, as this church begins to criticize him and speak against him and his ministry, does Paul say, hey, listen up, you losers. Look at all I've done. I'm way more, I'm superior to you. Look at all I've accomplished compared to you. No. He talks about his weakness. I came to you with fear and trembling. I almost quit. I almost gave up. I was ready to give up. And the only reason I didn't was the Lord Jesus personally visited me. (laughs) And then he said to me, I have many people in this city. Don't give up. Paul's spiritual journey did not lead him into self-centeredness and righteousness. To constantly divide from others. But to, to open his hands and serve and love the very people who were criticizing him and making his life difficult. He saw them all as gifts from God. He calls these Corinthian Christians saints at the beginning of the book. Like we talked about two weeks ago. A couple weeks we'll talk about, he says, you're the, pre- you're the temple. You're the presence of God. To people who are criticizing him and tearing his name down, he says, you're the place of the presence of God. You're saints. Live into that. I mean, how many of us speak to people who destroy our reputation like that or criticize us in that way? It's because Paul lives Christ and Christ crucified. That's the center of his whole existence. And so your discipleship to Jesus, what is it marked by? How often do you find yourself looking down on other Christians? Acting on your own advice without stopping to pray? Without asking others for wisdom and counsel? It's just just you and Jesus. Which really means it's, it's just you. I mean, even I'm just like, I hope you heard Giovanna's story. I mean, how many of us, like, oh man, we got a bunch of pews to get rid of? Like, what do you do? You pray. How many of us would pray to, like, for God to find a home for these pews? I mean, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I, that's not, I wouldn't do that. But Giovanna, I'm going to pray. And then what does the Lord do? Some guy in Brooklyn is praying. Like, the, just, you can't make that stuff up. It's reliance, it's humility, it's dependence. And yet, how many of us were, we're too impressed with ourselves to pray, too looking down on others, ourselves at the center of our own spiritual 
journey. Or uh, flip side, how much do you find yourself loving people you disagree strongly with? Listening to them and honoring them. How much do you find yourself moving argumentative conversations away from division and towards the person of Jesus? Just imagine if you took this vision of life into your school, your workplace, your family reunions. How many of our lives are marked with arguments, which ultimately are rooted down in, in pride? I see something you don't. I believe something you should. And that might be true. But you're saved because of a bloody, naked, and pale Jewish man. You can, we can never look down on anyone if that's true of us. We should, that should drive us into a life that itself is a cruciform life of self, self-denial, love, other-centered, sacrificial living. But a life of Christ crucified, it means, it means weakness. And in a divisive culture, I feel, like, I feel like that would be refreshing. It would be compelling. That a life centered on Christ crucified means humility, knowing our salvation is rooted in Jesus and not ourselves. And maybe you hear all that and think, okay, that means being a Christian means weakness. People run all, all over me through my whole life. Is that what you're saying? No, it's, I don't think that's what Paul is saying because Paul ends in this place. He says that a life of knowing Christ crucified is a life in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. What does that mean? And so he says that, like, he wants their faith not to rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So he, I think he means a couple of things by this. One is, uh, and this is a few months away in this series, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul names some things that are happening in the life of the church. There are miraculous healings. There are words of knowledge where someone in the community is given special information about the future, about some other Christian's life that only God would know that they're able to share with that person. It's pretty wild stuff. I'm not going to go there today. Um, there's a lot of, of debate about that in the church today. But where everyone agrees is that stuff did happen as the church was spreading out into um, the non-Christian world. There was powerful demonstration of the supernatural to make good on the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. We'll talk about more of that in, in a few months. I don't think that's what Paul is primarily referring to here because he's primarily speaking about his own preaching. And so think about this. For, for a Christian, what is our first experience of the Holy Spirit? It's our conversion. We become Christians by the Spirit's power alone. And so this, this is, I think this is part of Paul's irony here. Is the Corinthians now are looking at Paul and saying, not a great preacher, kind of a bad leader, we don't like him, not impressive. And Paul's sort of like, well, you became Christian by a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And what was that demonstration? It was his preaching. They were converted by his preaching. And now they don't like his preaching. And so Paul's irony here is, hey, listen, the preaching that's so bad, it converted you. Because only the Spirit converts you in the end anyway. Only the Spirit can give you eyes to see what you could never see on your own anyway. And so the Corinthians themselves, this church, they're not a product of human wisdom. They're not a product of the best arguments, the best persuasive strategies, but only the power of the Spirit. Paul is saying to them, your conversion came through preaching you don't like. Through the power of the Spirit, not because you saw profound arguments. How brilliant you are. No, the Spirit did that in you, converted you, overwhelmed your life and led you into life with Christ. And this has a really important implication for us. 
if you become a Christian through the work of the Spirit, not on human wisdom, not because we live up to the world's values, but only because of the power of God, and that means because you live by the power of the Spirit, you can share Christ crucified expectantly. When I was in middle school, the Indiana Pacers went on some epic playoff runs. And I grew up in Indianapolis, so I love the Pacers. And we got close to beating Michael Jordan in the Eastern Conference Finals, Game 7, in Jordan's last year. I think that's why he retired. He didn't want to face the Pacers again. So in Indy, like when this was happening, everyone watched the Pacers. It was an incredible, incredible deal. And as that was happening, at the end of games when the Pacers won and they would argue or interview players, the players, some of the players would say, I want to thank Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And I believe, my memory may not be correct, but I'm like so confident that at one point even Reggie Miller said that. The best player, player on the Pacers. I, I want to thank my, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which of course means you Bulls fans were rooting, rooting against Jesus Christ's team. You gotta deal with that however you want. But like as a Christian in Indianapolis, like G- Reggie Miller is on our team. Now I've got credibility in my middle school to talk about Jesus. If a celebrity, and I, listen, I think Christians were like that. If a celebrity talks about Jesus, or we can make Christianity look cool, more appealing, then we can share our faith in workplaces, schools family reunions. And Paul's saying, no. Jesus will never be cool. The world's value system will always find Christ crucified ridiculous. But we don't need the world's approval. And we don't live by the world's power. We live by the power of the Spirit. And he can do what we will never do with even the best well-reasoned argument. And this should give us great confidence to go out into the world and move in the power of the Spirit to talk about Jesus. Because it's so easy to think, when we go to school, when we go to work, hang with our neighbors to think, I need the right arguments, just the right response. The only way anyone will ever see that Jesus is compelling is when Reggie Miller thanks him personally on national television. No. You need two things. To share the gospel compellingly. That Christ was crucified for you. That happened. And the demonstration of the Spirit's power through you. And if you're a Christian, the Spirit's living in you and wants to do that for you. You don't need arguments. They can help. I'm not saying kill apologetics ministries. I'm not saying don't ever go to Moody. It's like, go to Moody. That's great. Do that stuff. But it's not what you need. It helps, but it's not what you need. What you need is Christ crucified in the power of the Spirit. And Paul is saying, this, this is where you started, church in Corinth. It was not my compelling preaching. It was not because I was a type A go-getter impre- that impressed all of the leaders in Corinth and everyone thought, that's the new thing. Let's all go follow that. No, this church was started by a discouraged pastor and two refugees. So afraid that God actually had to appear to Paul through Jesus to tell him not to quit. Don't give up. I have more people in this city. I just want to ask, do you believe that's true in your life? That in your life, God has more people yet. 
that when you roll into school tomorrow morning, God has more people in that school. So don't give up. Don't quit. When you roll into your workplace tomorrow, God has more people in that workplace. Don't give up yet. When you roll into your family reunion, whenever that is, God has people in your family. Don't give up. Yet, yeah, 1 Corinthians 2 would say, you don't, you, don't, you don't need to have the most brilliant arguments to share your faith. You need Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when you believe that, the Spirit comes into your life and you can move in demonstrations of power. To illustrate and to close, uh, you can do what a, a, a British hippie named Keith did. Christianity Today recently had a few conversion stories. This was my favorite. This guy named Keith, British hippie, goes to Pakistan to hand out gospel tracts to Muslims. That just feels like the beginning of a joke. A hippie goes to Pakistan. It's ridiculous and it's absurd. And a Muslim man who is a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad walked right up to him and asked him who he was and what he was doing. And Keith told him two things. He said, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which that's how the Jesus people hippies talk, which I think we should bring that back. I'm a Christian. Like, that doesn't mean anything. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, just, I dig that. The other thing he said was, and Jesus Christ can set you free. A hippie with a tract, basically with two things to say, to a direct descendant of Muhammad. No chance, right? Wrong. The descendant of Muhammad walked away, thought on what Keith had shared with him, and through his own sleep that night and wrestling, became a Christian. Went back looking for Keith. A couple days later, Keith was gone back to to Britain. And so when you see the world scoffing at or rejecting the Christian faith, that's okay. Our story is a king died for his enemies so that we could be forgiven and reign with him forever by the power of his spirit to demonstrate power in this world. That's both a beautiful story and a story that makes absolutely no sense by our world standards. And if Jesus the king was crucified for you, for me, then what else could you know in life? What else is there to know that's better than that? When you're afraid, in fear and trembling, in whatever circumstances of life you're facing, the king died for you. It's going to be okay. Trust him. And if, if Christ was crucified, that, mean he, that means he loves this world that much. He was willing to give his own life to it. Which means there's a good chance that people mocking him now will one day, through your life and teaching, come to faith in Jesus. Because he loves them so much, he gave them life. He gave his life for them. And now he's given you his spirit to go be a demonstration of power in their life. He can do anything. <laughs> and he has done anything. And so the older I get, sometimes it feels like the less I know. But I do know this. If you're going to know anything in this life, know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let us pray. Father, we... Uh, we pray that we would know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now we're going to know Him at His table. We remember His crucifixion. His body was given for us. His blood was shed for us. That we uh, might live by the power of His Spirit. So now, uh, may we come and feast at Your table. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. 
If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.